This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Jordan Rich, and this is the podcast on Mike with Jordan Rich. We celebrate conversation with creative people who have a lot to say and a lot to offer. And today we go deep with Dr. Latisse Lafeer, the New England Aquarium's Chief of Conservation and Stewardship. She oversees animal care, conservation learning, community engagement, the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life, and conservation policy. And when and if you come to Boston, you have to visit the New England Aquarium, one of the top aquariums in the world. So let's talk about the oceans and sea life and marine biology with a fabulous guest, Dr. Latisse Lafeer, who joins us now on mic. I love the aquarium. It's one of the top aquariums in the world. Where are you from? You're not a Bostonian, are you? I was born and raised in Chicago, uh, so I'm not a Bostonian, and I've spent a lot of my life living in Washington, D.C. I've also spent some time in California, but I'm a Chicagoan. You told, you told me you were an aquarium kid. Does that mean yeah. in Chicago growing up it was a favorite? In Chicago, I grew up in the Shedd Aquarium. Uh, so I do give the shed a lot of credit for where I am today as a marine biologist and a conservation professional. Uh, I know because I have your CV, but why don't you tell the audience where you studied to do what you do? I went to Brown University for undergraduate degree in aquatic biology and English, and my graduate work was a PhD in marine biology at the University of Delaware. So working at the New England Aquarium for people in your field must be a a high point must be something you're very proud of. I'm very proud, and especially in this new role as the Chief of Conservation and Stewardship, it's not a position that the aquarium has had in the past. So I have the opportunity to create uh, a new path forward for this position. And my charge is to integrate our conservation work across our programs and activities, again, in-house and in the field. And so it, it is very exciting as someone who loves the ocean, but also just the conservation efforts to be able to work with our researchers, our educators, et cetera, across People the get the feeling when they're out in the ocean, oh my God, it's so vast, it's so huge. Uh, how could anything ever threaten the ocean? And yet there are lots of threats and there are lots of reasons to have the job you have. Why don't we just explore the overall uh, vista and why it's so important to protect the oceans? Well, first I'll say that a lot of people don't understand that there's one connected ocean. Often they think about the different oceans with an S, the different basins. So just helping people understand that it's all connected and that we're connected to the ocean and the ocean connected to us. And that the reason Earth is a livable planet is because of our ocean. And so we have more than 70% of our planet is the ocean. It drives our climate system. Often people think of climate change as an atmospheric or land-based issue, but the but the ocean drives the climate system. The ocean also provides literally every other breath. So 50% of our oxygen comes from the ocean. Nations, people around the world depend on the protein that comes from the ocean. Like most of our living planet is marine. Uh, so that is why I do the work that I do, often people see the surface of the ocean and that's all they see. And sometimes they only see it through the lens of an aquarium or through images on a screen. They don't actually visit the ocean themselves. So helping to connect people to the fact that we are 
dependent on the ocean for our very survival. So interesting, the ecosystem in the oceans and in the waters is so vast and multi-layered because you have various animals at various depths, you have sea plant life, you have, I mean, an array of, of things to study, don't we? We do, and to the very depths. So I've had the opportunity to visit all seven continents, including doing research in Antarctica, as well as the deep sea. And what we don't realize is even beyond what we call the photic zone, so where light stops penetrating, there's life on the very sea floor dependent on the chemical reactions that are happening that deep. And all of that life helps support us at the surface. So the the activities that are happening that deeply uh, bubbles to the top, literally upwells, you know, so uh, the nutrients that are being produced in the in deepest parts of the ocean make its way to the make its way to the surface to support uh, life. And so there's a whole range from the microscopic to the largest animal on the planet, the blue whale, are all ocean-based creatures. Mm. And of course, uh, so many of these creatures sustain us with food, but they also help us in terms of medicine, in terms of technology. What are some of the things that we owe our sea life to? I mean, so many things I'm sure you could rattle off for the rest of the podcast, but give us a few examples. We get so much of our oxygen from the tiniest plants on our planet, which live in the ocean. Uh, And the ocean also has captured uh, a significant amount of excess heat and carbon to actually curb some of the impact we're seeing from climate change. But that is exactly why we're starting to see the impacts on the ocean itself. So to your point earlier, even though it's so vast, it isn't indestructible, but it's also an important solution for climate change. And yes, there have been many health discoveries uh, that have come from ocean creatures uh, that have helped support us as our own human health directly. And we, we're finding that even uh, working, looking at ocean habitats, for example, our wetlands are helping to curb things like flooding and storm surge that come and impact coastal communities. So there are a range of physical and biological reasons we need to thank the ocean uh, for uh, our livelihoods today. The technology is evolving in you know how we investigate, how we track animals, things like that. What are some of the cutting edge developments that you're working with people in your field? Yeah, so there's the need to collect more data around the ocean. Uh, and so I have not only in this role, but in, my, in previous roles, have seen some of the work that's, that's being a, produced from say buoys or autonomous vehicles that are able to uh, move around the ocean at its surface and at its depths to collect uh, information about uh, the chemistry and the biology of the ocean, including images and water samples. And at the New England Aquarium, we're also working very closely with uh, startup companies that are trying to develop and scale innovation to advance blue tech, what we're calling blue tech ocean technology. So for example, efforts to quantify blue carbon. And what blue carbon is, is what I mentioned before, how much carbon is being captured by the ocean or its habitats and what significance does that have? Uh, Often people think about forests, rainforests, and the importance of trees in capturing carbon, Uh, but we're doing similar work from a tech perspective to try to quantify how much carbon is being captured by the ocean and its its habitat. So that's, that's an example, but Uh, Obviously, other technologies uh, related to energy development, wind energy, wave energy, 
etc. You you mentioned blue tech companies and so forth, and I do a whole lot of feature reporting on a bunch of topics. And one of the things I do is a feature called the Upside, which is good news. And I find more and more stories about companies and organizations, nonprofits, who are doing their part to sort of clean up the oceans, clean up the rivers, the lakes, etc. Uh, it seems to be no pun intended a grassroots, or should I say, a sea roots uh, movement. Often local communities are starting to find ways to advance solutions themselves. And they have to work with nonprofits or sometimes government agencies, but a lot of the inspiration starts right at home. So to your point, grassroots, uh, right in those communities saying, we see the impacts that are we're experiencing, what can we do to solve it? Mm. Uh, things like cleaning up the ocean pollution, for example, there's some communities that have just tried to come up with ways to capture that pollution, marine debris, plastic pollution, et cetera, et cetera that are coming mm -hmm. in uh, right near them. Some have expanded beyond their local communities. How do we get out and actually do something about that? Uh, so it's both top down and bottom up to realize that we all have to do our part to uh, address the different uh, impacts we're seeing. You know, everything is political in this day and age, sadly. Absolutely. And uh, when the issue of plastics problems caused by plastics in the oceans comes up, people say, well, I don't want to give up my plastic straw. And what difference is it going to make? Let's talk about that. Because I, I mean, I heard tell that so many organizations, countries, maybe companies are dumping still into the ocean all of these biodegradable or non-biodegradable products. Talk a little bit with me about the plastics issue, if you would. The plastics issue is a climate issue. Uh, climate issue a lot is fossil fuel based. But then the plastics, once they make it to the ocean, and not always dumped directly. Sometimes it is indirect. So it's lost say, in transport or it's lost through our water treatment systems, through sewage, et cetera, and make its way through our watersheds to the ocean. Once plastic is in the ocean, it takes decades, sometimes hundreds of years uh, for certain plastic products to break down. And even as they do so, they become what we call microplastics, really small plastics uh, in the ocean that continue to circulate. Animals start to digest that and it makes its way back up into our food chain. Mm -hmm. And so there's some evidence now that not only do we have microplastics in our own bodies as humans, we're seeing it rain, literally rain back down on us. Uh, and so it's a pervasive issue. And I know it was, quote, innovation you know, in the 50s to come up with plastic pollution but, or come up with plastic products, but it's now becoming pollution and mm. toxic pollution. So yeah. again, the toxins are being released, not just the material itself. So many, uh, so many of these things are discovered well after the fact. And uh, at least we are aware of them now to sort of do something about them. The other question has to do with fisheries. And we're in New England, of course. Mm -hmm. The New England Aquarium is here, and uh, I'm here, and you're here. Fisheries are so vital to the economy, to the food supply, and so forth. What is the aquarium doing about local fisheries, protecting them, uh, also realizing the fishermen and women need to make a living? How does it all balance out in your world? I'm glad you used the word balance. The New England Aquarium seeks to uh, advance responsible use as well as conservation. We do see the need to balance our approaches. It doesn't have to be a zero sum game. You either protect the fish or you stop fish. You know, you stop fishing. We see the ability to, to do yeah. both in a responsible way, and so we do work very closely. For example, with our partners to advise uh, companies on how to source sustainable sources of 
seafood. And when we say sustainable, we're considering things like uh, impacts to habitat when going out and collecting and catching those fish, bycatch. Uh, so bycatch is when you capture fish that weren't the target and then are discarded and those populations are affected. And so we advise directly because of our expertise at New England Aquarium on sustainable seafood sources. We also seek to partner with agencies uh, to give them the data and information that we have to improve their management of fisheries. And then most importantly, we seek to partner with the fishing communities themselves. So the fishermen, the lobstermen uh, to work through shared solutions to ensure that they continue to thrive economically and can provide for their families and provide food for our nation, for the world, um, but also reduce the impacts they might have on species and habitat. So right. we work across the spectrum in that way. That's great to know. Dr. LaFerre, you know that media plays a role in everything, as, it, as does politics. In 1975, when the big movie Jaws came out, I mean, it caused panic. Everyone feared sharks, and they still do to this day. And even though the chances of being bitten and hurt by a shark are so low, there's not great PR for certain animals in the ocean. But what should people know about things like, like that? I mean, obviously, take precautions anytime you're in the wild, but do sharks get a bad rap, in your opinion? <laughs> sharks sharks definitely get a bad rep. So it is very rare to be attacked by a shark. And, and to be clear, sharks aren't purposely attacking humans. They're mistaken um, bites. Usually they're mistaken for seals. You know, they mm -hmm. think there's a, pre a prey available to them when they see a surfer, say, splashing about. Um, so it is very rare. They should be cautious to look to make sure... Um, Swimmers are thinking about, you know, time of year or certain areas where we might, as experts, we have a shark team of experts uh, at the New England Aquarium, might be able to flag where sharks might be feeding or certain dynamics where warm waters are uh, pushing sharks certain places. Uh, but overall, it is very rare and we make our shark experts available to the media when these attacks yeah. happen because they're sensationalists. They make the news because they're rare in right. some ways. Sure. And so people think they're happening all the time. So I encourage the media to reach out to <laughs> shark experts, including those at New England Aquarium, so that we can keep the public informed and answer their questions and reduce misconceptions. Absolutely. You mentioned seals, and I had to bring this up at the aquarium. One of the great attractions is is visiting with the seals, and the seals do their, their annual migration and then find their way back, which I think is fascinating. And that's the thing of about a lot of sea animals, um, this inner sense, this innate sense of understanding where they're going. The octopi, even, who have literally no brain that we can detect, form friendships, if you saw that famous documentary a few years ago. So uh, what is it about sea life that people should not be taking for granted beyond all the conservation? I mean, these are incredible creatures that uh, we should really respect, I think. I think that people should realize that uh, sea animals are lives and they are connected to us and they do have uh, a purpose on this planet. And in some cases, populations are truly uh, survivalist where they're reproducing and wanting to thrive, grow, thrive, reproduce and take care of their young. Uh, and so we are all connected and we should uh, realize that uh, sea animals are our lives and some, as you to your point, are have higher cognitive 
abilities and behaviors than, than others, at least based on our current knowledge, uh, but that they shouldn't be discounted because we are from the very smallest animal connected to them as humans. Before we close out, a fun question. You've done a lot yeah. of research. You've been in a lot of water. What's the most sort of impressive, amazing, unexpected thing you've encountered in your studies? Is that an easy question or a tough question? <laughs> that is that is a that is a tough question, but I will say it's hard to to decide between uh, Antarctica, my experience in Antarctica, um, and my experience at the deep sea. Like it's very rare for people to see either of those. But I will say, going to the deep sea, having been des- descending for more than two hours in the dark, when the light comes on, I was in. Huey's Alvin too, um, so Woodhull Oceanographic Institution's deep sea vessel, when the pilot turned on the light to truly see how much life there is, uh, even that deep and how they're working together in a community. So the worms and the hydrothermal vents and you see the crabs and you see the fishes that are all in that community, uh, that had to be the most Mm. uh, incredible experience that I had. And again, that like, so I'm connected to this all the way down to the deep sea. Um, the most troubling thing though, is I'll say is Antarctica and to the deep sea and all around the nation now, or all around the world's ocean waters, we see just how much we're impacting mm. those places, even though we might never visit them. By polluting the waters? By, that's right, polluting yeah. the water and uh, the climate impact. So seeing, actually seeing plastics that deep is troubling. Well, people can bring awareness to themselves just by visiting places like the New England Aquarium or checking out the website neaq.org. Thank you so much. You are obviously somebody who has a passion for what you do. And I know a lot of the folks at the aquarium are working round the clock to uh, to better our world. So can't thank you enough. It's delightful to meet you and uh, good luck on your further adventures. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks once again to Dr. Latisse Lafier, New England Aquarium's Chief of Conservation and Stewardship. Find out more about the exciting activity at the aquarium. Go to neaq.org, neaq.org. And thank you for checking out this podcast as we present conversations with some of the most interesting and certainly the most creative people on planet Earth. Find out more at my website, jordanrich.com. And until next time, remember to be well so you can do good. Take care.